Heavenly Father, thank you for that you've given us your word. Thank you that you've given us life. Thank you that you've given us the breath in our lungs that we're able to be here now, Lord. Lord, we ask that you pour your Holy Spirit here in this room, that we be filled with your Spirit, Lord. That we be able to see you through these words of yours. That we we may be able to understand you more, Lord. Or soften our hearts and our minds. You brought us here for a reason. You have us here for a reason, Lord. And we thank you for that. Lord, use me just to teach your word, Lord, faithfully and honestly, Lord. Remove, remove myself from the equation. Just use me. Speak through me, Lord. Speak truths with what we're about to, the passages and, and, and the message I have today, Lord. We thank you. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And we just started here in this new chapter. in verse 1. First John chapter 5 verse 1. The word of God says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. Now his commands are not a burden, because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I'm going to stop there for a minute and just uh, speak on what we just read. Now, former President Eisenhower said this about confidence. In order to be a leader, a a man must have followers. And to have followers, a man must have their confidence. Hence, a supreme quality of a leader is unquestionable, unquestionably integrity. Without it, no real success is possible. No matter whether it is on a section, on a section gang, a football field, in an army, or in an office. If a man associate, associates, if a man's associates find him guilty of phoniness, if they find that he lacks forthright integrity, he will fall. His teachings and actions must square with each other. The first great need, therefore, is integrity and high purpose. Now, the reason I mention this is because your growth and maturity as a Christian is determined by living with divine confidence. In these verses, John argues how Christians can live confidently by believing in Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 begins with John reintroducing a theme he developed earlier in the letter. He is reminding readers 
his readers that only those who believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now in the Greek, the word believes means trusting that something is true. So here John is saying that anyone who truly believes that Jesus is God's Messiah is a born-again child of God. Now as a child of God, it is expected that he or she will love their Heavenly Father just as a child loves his earthly parents. And in a family, it's typical and expected that the children of the same parents will love their siblings. So the child of God should love the father's other children. Even those, even those, even those, I'm sorry, even if those other children go to a different church, are rich, are poor, have a different culture, have a different race, and yes, even if they have a different political opinion than you. The common denominator that makes us God's children is that we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In his gospel account, in his gospel account John wrote, but to all who did receive him, who did, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In this very first verse, John is informing us that, his, that the new birth joins together faith and love. Now, after having made the point that those who love God also love the children of God, John now shares the litmus, te shares the litmus test that enables believers to know whether they love God's children. This litmus test is when we love God and obey his commands. You see, just as much as our love for the people of God reflects our love for God, so our love and obedience for God is a demonstration of love to the body of Christ. Your love is proven by the love you, you have for your fellow Christian brother and sister. You must understand that love for God and love for man are so inseparable that the presence of either is evidence of the other. The opposite is just as true. If either is found alone, it's not genuine love. Now what I mean, what I mean is if love to the brethren proves the reality of one's love to God, then love to God proves the worth of one's love to men. Loving others finds its strongest motive, motive in loving God. Now the command to love one another does not prove burdensome for those who know God because they have been born of God. When a believer genuinely loves God, he or she will want to obey him and please him. You see, when you love someone, it seems little trouble to go, to go to a lot of difficulty to help or please that person. You just enjoy doing it. I know when I, when I first fell, I was going to say when I first fell, and I still love her, my wife, you know. Um, I would go out of my way to do anything for her. I mean, I, and I still, I sometimes will tell her, I'll go to the moon and back for you. And, you know, I say, I try to be sweet, you know, with, with her. And that um, she knows, my kids know, 
that I will give them whatever. I will go hungry. I will go naked. I will do whatever it takes for them. And if we're able to do this for the people that we love, our family, we ought to, be, we ought to do the same for God. You ought to enjoy doing it. However, if you had to do it for an enemy, for someone you didn't like, you'd probably be complaining all the time. Like, why do I, why do I gotta do that for them? Why, I mean, do I really have to give them food off my table? Do I really have to give them the shirt off my back? He did this to me, she did that to me. Did you hear what, what they said, what she said? Yes, even loving them, caring for them because they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. We may not, again, there's going to be differences. We're not always going to get along. But we're called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of, again, denomination, regardless of, of where they come from. And we, we have to. We have to love them. Now, an example of this was Jacob's service. If you remember back in Genesis, Genesis 29, Jacob served Laban for seven years. And in that time, it seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. So obeying God's commands does not seem a burden when we really love him. John then adds that the reason God's commands are not a burden is because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. The Holy Spirit lives within the believer. The, the Holy Spirit that lives within the believer will enable them to gradually and more successfully overcome sin. Now, it's, it, it is important to understand this. As you increase in your victory over sin, as long as we're living in these bodies, as long as you're living in these fleshly bodies and these corrupt bodies, you will never be completely free of it. You'll never be completely free of sin. But understanding, again, that in Christ we have victory, that we have conquered sin, that he, God says that we've conquered over sin, understanding this will help you move forward during those times that you do fail. Now John goes on to say, this is the victory that has conquered the world, even our faith. Here John is defining what, what it is that enables born-again believers to overcome the world. It's their faith. Since believing on him is a key to being born of God, and he says this in verse, and this is what he says in verse 1, the key to victory is faith. Not only an initial come to the altar kind of faith, but a, cons but a consistently abiding faith, an ongoing reliance and trust upon Christ, upon Jesus Christ. The nature of faith that overcomes the world is made clear in the following rhetorical question and answer. And who is the one that conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
the life of abiding faith and trust in Jesus Christ is a life that overcomes the pressures and the temptations of the world. You and I overcome because we are born of God. And we are born of God because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, there are two aspects in verses 1 and 5 that I want to touch on just a little bit more. And the first one has to do with joyful obedience. If you're a Christian here this morning, you ought to have more than just a simple obedience. You ought to have a joyful obedience. A simple obedience sounds like this. God, I will obey you because I know the power you hold and I know what you're capable of. Simple obedience typically comes from fear or intimidation in who God is. On the other hand, joyful obedience sounds like this. God, I will obey you because I love you. And I believe you know what's best for me. Joyful obedience comes from an absolute trust and security in God's goodness as a loving father. When you are born again, not only do you love God, not only does your love for God grow, but your love for God's other children will grow as well. You demonstrate this love by keeping God's commandments. When asked what the most important command in the law of Moses, Jesus says, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what I'm saying is that a Christian with perfecting love will joyfully obey God's commands. As your love for the Father matures, you have confidence and you're no longer afraid of His will. You will be honest towards others and lose your fear of being rejected. You will also have a new attitude towards the Word of God by seeing it as an expression of God's love and you will enjoy obeying it. When you open up God's word, it's no longer one of those things like, oh man, I'm not doing this and I'm scared and God, I haven't done this and I'm, I'm worried that you're going to punish me because I haven't fully obeyed your commands and your will. It, it's, it doesn't become a, it, it's not, you're not scared of God's word. You love it and you want to follow it and you want to obey it. Confidence towards God honesty towards others, and joyful obedience are the marks of perfecting love and the ingredients that make up a happy Christian life. Now the other aspect I want to touch on from these first five verses is victory. As a born-again Christian, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and Romans 8, 37 says that we have been given victory through our Lord Jesus Christ and we are more than victorious through him who loved us your victory is the result of faith 
and you grow in faith as you grow in love. The more you love someone, the easier it is to trust him or her. The more you love Christ, the more your, our love for Christ is perfected, the more our faith in Christ is perfected too. Because faith and love mature together. The victory you have is a victory of faith in Jesus Christ. You see, because you believe in him, you have overcome the world. Jesus, the Son of God, gives you the victory. The victory you share with Christ allows you to claim a spiritual position in him or with him identified let me read that again. The moment you surrendered your life to Christ and became a born-again Christian, you identified with him by the Holy Spirit and made a member of his body. Your old life, the life you used to live in sin, the life you used to live before you knew Jesus Christ has been buried. And you were raised to a new life in glory. A new life of glory. So do you see what that means? In Christ, you are sitting in the very throne of the universe. So here, so here is what John is trying to tell you in verses 4 and 5. As a Christian, you don't have to walk around defeated. Because in Jesus, you are more than conquerors. He has defeated every single enemy. And you share his victory. Now, by faith, claim his victory. Listen, the more you mature, the more you grow as a born-again believer, God's commands will not be a burden to you. And you will obey them out of love, not fear. And as you live in this atmosphere of love and joyful obedience, you will be able to face the world with victorious faith and overcome instead of being overcome. Okay, so now let's go into our next portion of scripture this morning. Again, we're at 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Jesus Christ. He is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept the, the testimony of men, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given us about his son the one who believes in the son of God has this testimony within him the one who does not believe God has made him the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life and this life is his son and the one who has the son has life the one who doesn't have the son does not have life 
I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. One of the important beliefs that distinguishes Christianity from other religions is a belief that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. This belief is called the Incarnation. In verses 6 6 to 13, John provides the evidence for believing in the Incarnation by identifying reliable witnesses to that Incarnation. The ultimate source of those witnesses and the importance of accepting or rejecting all the evidence. So let's look into each one more carefully. Verses 5 and 6 tell us of three reliable witnesses whose testimony provides evidence that confirm the incarnation of Jesus. We're told in verse 6 that Jesus Christ came by water and blood. In other words, he was revealed to be God's son by the testimony of water and blood, which represent his baptism and death. When Christ was baptized in the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit descended upon him from heaven. And in that moment, God the Father said, This is my beloved Son. This water baptism testified to the incarnation of Jesus Christ and was the beginning of his public ministry. Now at the crucifixion, the supernatural events that were told about in Matthew 27 and the confession of the Roman soldier after his death verified that Jesus was the Son of God. So the blood he shed on the cross also testified to the incarnation of Jesus Christ and marked the end of his public ministry. The testimony of the water and blood during these two events point to, point to the first piece of evidence concerning the incarnation. The second piece of evidence John cited for the incarnation relates to the work and testimony of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit is truth, we can trust that His testimony provides the sufficient evidence to the true person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said this in John 15, 26 and 16, 14. He will testify of me. He will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So John in verses 7 and 8 reiterated reiterated that these three witnesses lend more weight to their otherwise independent testimony. There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. They are in agreement. Each of these three witnesses provide the evidence that confirms that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. In verses 9 through 11, John provides the ultimate and divine source of these witnesses and the importance of accepting or rejecting the evidence. 
In verse 9, we're told that the most potent evidence for the incarnation is the testimony of God himself. His divine testimony is greater than the testimony of men because it's more authoritative, more accurate, more trustworthy, more important, and more deserving of acceptance. On a daily basis, we all receive the witness of people regarding various things. When I come home from work at 8 o'clock in the morning, my wife asks, usually asks me, hey, how would your day go? What did you, how was work? And if it was dead and there's nothing going on, I will tell her, hey, nothing happened. But it, if it's busy, I will give her a rundown. Now, she believes in me because she accepts my testimony. And the same is true when my kids tell me something. And, and even if it was someone who I didn't like or I didn't necessarily believe was, you know, likes to, like, like to exaggerate, if he tells me about something, more than likely that, more than likely I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and I'm going to believe him. So if we're able to trust the testimony of others, we should have much more confidence in the witness of God when he tells us who Jesus is. Verse 10 then tells us why we must understand the importance of accepting or rejecting the evidence of God's testimony. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within him. You see, when we believe in, on Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit as an inner confirmation of our standing before God. Romans 8.16 puts it like this. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Now, this isn't the case with those who reject the testimony God has said about Jesus. The one who does not believe God has made him out. God, the one who does not believe God has made him a liar. John is speaking here of those who deny or reject the evidence from the water, blood, and the spirit regarding the human and divine nature of Jesus when people refuse to believe who Jesus is they are rejecting what God has said about him and by doing so they make God out to be a liar so again for those who who say you know what I I believe that he was a good human being and that he was a good teacher but I don't think he was God they making God out to be a liar for those who just say that, you know, he was, he was a prophet, he was divine, but he was nothing more than that, again, they're making God out to be a liar. They are rejecting what God has said in his word about who Jesus Christ is. Amplifying now the nature of the witness which God gave, John adds, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Up to this point, John has emphasized the evidence of Jesus' incarnation through the witness of the water, blood, and spirit, and God Himself. 
Here he emphasizes God's testimony concerning the benefit made available to believers through him. Simply put, what is stressed here is God's testimony concerning the eternal life he gives his people in his son. God's message to man is this. Eternal life is a gift from God received in Jesus Christ. But God's gift of eternal life is given, because God's gift of eternal life is given in His Son, it follows that the one who has the Son has life. You see, eternal life is identified with Jesus Christ. And living in Jesus is the evidence of eternal life. Now I'll say that again in case it sounded kind of weird. Eternal life is identified with Jesus Christ and living in Jesus is the evidence of eternal life. However, the one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. What John is saying is if having the Son involves believing in Him, and if believing in Him involves accepting the message that was proclaimed at the beginning of the eyewitnesses, at the beginning by the eyewitnesses, then as far as the author is concerned, those who reject Jesus do not have eternal life because they do not have the Son. John's closing statement in verse 13 indicates this hope, his hope that believers who've completely placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ will absolutely know they have eternal life. It's important for us to know that our salvation rests in Jesus and not on anything that we do. You see, if we base our salvation on the way we perform on any given day, our confidence and assurance will fluctuate. It will fluctuate day to day. Some days you may perform good and you may say, you know what, yeah, I'm saved. And some days you may perform not so well, you may have a horrible day, and you can start thinking in your, in your mind, you can start convince, convincing yourself, maybe I'm not saved. You have to know Again, that it all depends on what Jesus has already done for us. When you understand this and you can know without a shadow of a doubt that you are saved. When you know and believe what Jesus has already done on the cross and that it's complete and that it's done. You can know for sure. You can have absolute assurance that you are saved. It doesn't depend on what you do, not on your works, but on Him alone. Now, man, and, I'm, and when I say man, I'm also speaking of women, has a deep desire for certainty. We want to be certain about things, right? And he will even, I know some people will even dabble in the occult in his effort to find out something for sure. 
A businessman having dinner with his pastor said to him, do you see those offices across the street? In them since some of the most influential business leaders in this town. Many of them used to come over here regularly to consult a fortune teller. Now she isn't here anymore, but a few years, but a few years ago, you can count up the, up the million dollars in this room as men waited to consult her. We all want certainties in life. If we didn't, we wouldn't have contracts. We wouldn't have warranties. We wouldn't have insurances. We wouldn't have even have a need to make, to make oaths and promises. Certainties are important to us because they help convince us that something is true. Now that we've gone through these verses, I hope that you can see that we've been given two certainties on which you can build your life with confidence. In verses 6 through 10, we're given a certainty that Jesus is God. This is the first Christian certainty, and it is foundational to everything else. Jesus is God. Verses 11 through 13 gives you the certainty as a believer that you have eternal life. That's absolutely sure. That's, that's a certainty. Eternal life is a gift. And it's not something we earn. This gift is a person, Jesus Christ. And we receive eternal life not only from Christ, but in Christ. If you're the kind of person that needs to have certainty, especially when it comes to eternal destination, there's nothing better than having the certainties that God offers. But as with all certainties, it begins with trusting the source who's offering that certainty. And who is that source? It's God. You've got to trust God. Because if you don't trust him, you're going to doubt what he's already made certain, what he's made, what he's, the assurances that he's given you, that he's given us as believers. You have to trust him. King David said this in Psalm 910. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Yahweh. God will not disappoint you and will not back and will not take back the promises he's made to you or the certainties you have in Christ. Now, it, it's, we have to understand, it's important to understand, again, what God has given us, the gift that God has given us. And if you doubt that, if, you, if it's something that you're not sure about, you're not sure about your eternal destination, then I urge you to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He died for you. He hung on that cross. He was beaten. He was 
spat upon. And he hung there to take your sins upon him, to for, so that your sins may be forgiven, so that God may see you as innocent. If you place your faith and trust in him, if you surrender your life to him, he will give you eternal life. He will forgive you your sins. The Holy Spirit will come and make his home in you. And you will begin living for him. Now, it, it, growth and maturity doesn't happen right away. It is a process. I mean, we, especially in the beginning, I remember when I first became a Christian, I made a bunch of mistakes. I was too zealous. And I was, I was way too legalistic about things. But as time went on, God showed me how to love. And he will show you how to love as well. But you have to, to grow and mature. You have to abide in him. You have to live in him. You have to embrace him. You have to fall in love with his word. Listen to what he says. Have him just, he wants to, allow him to speak to you through his word, through prayer, through preaching. Maybe through a word of encouragement by others or from others. But as your love for him grows, your love for others will grow. And you'll see, again, how much, how wonderful God is and how, how much he cares for you and, and what he's done for you. I mean, I'm amazed now at when I sitting there or standing there during worship. I do, I stand in awe. Because I, I realize that how horrible of a person I was and that I used to be. And now he sees me as his child. And now he says that I'm more than a conqueror. He says that I've, I've conquered and have, have victory. And even on my worst days, I hold on to that. I hold on to that. Now, if you're here or if, if you're watching and, or listening online, and if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you feel God's pull, you feel that tug in your heart to accept Jesus into your heart, I'm going to close in prayer and I'm going to lead you into a prayer to accept Jesus into your heart. And wherever you're at in the quietness of your heart, you can pray this. But again, make sure if you do this, do this because it's, it's not because you're scared, but because you sincerely believe. You really want to place your, tr your faith and trust in Him because you know. God, that we have a good God. God is a wonderful, beautiful, awesome God. So let's close now in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the victory that we have because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. 
Lord, without you, we're nothing. And all we deserved was the full extent of your wrath and punishment. But now, in Christ, we have an assurance. We have your love. We have your spirit living within us. And so, Lord, we, we want to grow more in the knowledge of you. We want to grow more in loving you and loving others, Lord. As I said, if you've never accepted Jesus in your heart, wherever you're at, just pray this. Father, forgive me. I've sinned. I'm a sinner, Lord. Forgive me for all the times that I've hurt others, that I've rebelled and that I've spoken out against you. Lord, I'm sorry. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe he is your son that you sent to die for me. And so now I give my sins, I hand my sins over to him. so that I may be clean, so that I may be seen as white as snow, Lord. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your love. Help me to grow as a believer, as a born-again Christian. Help me to walk in your ways. I accept your forgiveness. And so now use me, Lord. Use me to do your will. In Jesus' name. I pray for those who prayed that, Lord, and may find good churches, good Bible-teaching churches that they may go to, they may hear your word. They may grow and learn from you, Lord. And so now as we close, Lord, I just pray that you bless the rest of this morning. And we just enjoy this time of fellowship. Bless those that are here and those that are watching and listening. Thank you. We praise you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.